0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. Thank you for joining me. I'm Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the One Verse Podcast. Have you ever read Luke chapter 16? The story of the rich man and Lazarus, and wondered if it is describing a place of everlasting torment and torture in hell where people scream and suffer and burn for all eternity and beg for a drop of water to cool their tongue. Is Jesus describing hell in that text? Well, I am going to suggest in today's podcast episode that no, Jesus is not describing a place of everlasting torture and torment for unbelievers in hell. In fact, those who teach this idea from the text very often miss the entire point of the text. That's what we will be discussing in today's podcast episode. You do not want to miss it. Now, just so you know, today's podcast episode is drawn from my new book, What is Hell? And lots of reviews are already coming in on this book. So we have Truth Seeker says... I'm looking forward to reading this book completely and probably several times. I found the author to be well studied. (laughs) Thank you, Truth Seeker. Uh, Jim says, Jeremy does an excellent job explaining the critical passages of the Bible that are typically used to teach. There is a hell waiting for all of us sinners. Uh, This is a great book if you're trying to understand this topic. Michael Wilson says, hell is one of those hot button topics. Some believe in hell because of God's holy standards against sin. Others don't believe in hell because of God's great love. What does the Bible really say about it? And then Jeremy Myers describes the words for hell and passages. Mike Edwards, who writes at What God May Really Be Like, says, This may be Jeremy's best book yet. What is more important than defending God's character? Jeremy shows in a scholarly but readable way that the traditional understanding of hell does not actually exist. Pete Nelmapius writes, This book, being part of Jeremy Myers' Christian Questions series, is another well-written, easy-to-read, comprehensive study of biblical terms and concepts. Uh, in typical Jeremy style, he does not avoid difficult texts, but discusses in detail all of them. And highlights the typical deal-breaker texts often used in some popular interpretations of hell Elaine O'Connor writes reading this book was a powerful transformative experience with every new chapter from Genesis to Revelation I gained a fuller understanding of hell and with this biblical understanding came a deeper sense of God's sovereignty brilliance and love I've already read it twice And each time I find myself enlightened and rejuvenated. Thank you so much for those of you who have left reviews. I really appreciate it. It helps me know that I'm on the right track with the books I'm writing. And if you haven't bought or read this book yet, look, do it by tomorrow, June 7th, 2019. Because if you do that, then send me an email to hellbook at redeeminggod.com. And at the end of June, I will send you about 20 hours of additional audio teachings about hell. All right, uh, this these audio teachings will form the basis for my course about hell, which is valued at $297. All right, If you're part of my discipleship group, by the way, you're already going to get this for free along with a PDF download of the book and some other things. But, but uh, if you're not part of the discipleship group, you can still get access to these audio teachings by the book What is Hell on Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, wherever, it doesn't matter. Then send me an email, hellbook at redeeminggod.com, and I, at the end of June, will send you these 20 hours or so of additional audio teachings that are based on the book, Uh, more teachings about hell, okay? So let's study this story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. This text probably is the premier passage in the Bible that convinces people of the reality of hell. Jesus tells this story about this rich man who does not behave very well toward a poor man in this life. And then when they both die, the rich man ends up suffering in these flames. And the poor man is across this chasm with Abraham. And the rich man wants the poor man to come and... and. Soothe him with a drop of water on his tongue, and to go and warn his sons that the, this place really is, is ahead for them. And probably the text, one of these texts for this, the, the key verse in the passage is Luke 16:24, where the rich man cried and said, "Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So, is Jesus really describing a literal place where people will go to be burned and tormented, where they will suffer and scream in agony for eternity, begging, pleading for a drop of water to cool their tongue as they suffer in the flames? Well, if you've been listening to these studies, Up to this point, you know that I do not believe such a place exists. I do not believe that there is a divine torture chamber, you know, somewhere in the basement of heaven or whatever, where God sends unbelievers to scream and suffer and burn for all eternity. I'm not a universalist. I am not an annihilationist. I do believe that unbelievers live forever, and they will not spend eternity with God in the same way that we do, But I also don't believe that God tortures people forever. So if that's the case, then we need to understand what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 16 when he tells this story. And several factors, several clues from the context— help us understand what Jesus is really teaching. In fact, if we think that Jesus is teaching about an everlasting torture chamber for the unregenerate dead, then I believe we end up missing the entire point of the story. So let's look at some of these factors, some of these clues, some of these contextual keys, which help us understand what Jesus really is teaching. First, let's just talk about the theology. If Jesus really is telling people about how to escape hell, and go to heaven when they die, then the lesson of the story is, if you want to go to heaven when you die, if you want to escape hell when you die, then you need to take care of the poor. You need to be generous to the poor. In other words, if you don't take care of the poor, then off to hell with you. (laughs) Now, Is that what Scripture teaches anywhere else? No. Far from it, in fact. How do we receive eternal life? How do we make sure—let's say hell really does exist. Let's say there really is a divine torture chamber, okay? Just for the sake of argument here. Uh, How does a person avoid that fate and end up spending eternity with God, with the rest of the saints? Not by taking care of the poor— that's a good work. That would mean we are earning, working our way to heaven, into God's family, into eternal life. No, we receive eternal life freely, by God's grace, simply and only by believing in Jesus for it. All right, John 3.16, John 5.24, John 6.47, over and over and over again, the Bible teaches us that eternal life is not received by good works, but by faith alone In Jesus Christ alone. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take care of the poor. We definitely should. There are numerous other teachings in the Bible that tell us why and how we should take care of the poor, why there are blessings in store for those who do this, all right? But one of the blessings for taking care of the poor is not going to heaven, avoiding hell when you die, all right? Uh, We receive eternal life by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So so that's the first thing that should cause us caution when reading this text about, you know, how to escape hell and go to heaven when you die. Uh, That fate of hell is not gained by treating the poor badly, all right? It's it's, uh, the afterlife experience, eternal heaven, eternal life. Voiding hell, all of that sort of thing is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, all right? So uh, that's the first thing that should give us a clue that something else is going on here. Now, what about this thing about unbelievers and believers all in this same giant cavern, all right? In, in this story, we have Abraham and Lazarus sort of on one side of this pit, and we have the rich man on the other side. So they're in the same sort of room, same giant area. And so some people get from this the idea that the unredeemed dead are in the same place as the redeemed dead. At least that's what Jesus is describing here. So is there some sort of, you know, annex or suburb of hell where the redeemed can live in relative peace and safety? And then they look across this chasm uh, at all the people on the other side, screaming and suffering and burning in the torture chamber of hell. Is that... First of all, it doesn't sound like a great place to live anyway. Who wants, who wants that to be your existence, even if you are redeemed? And so what happens here is many scholars, you go look at commentaries and books on this, and many scholars will say, well, what Jesus is describing here is a place called Abraham's bosom. And it was a place, according to these books and scholars, that existed prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus and it's where all the Old Testament saints went before Jesus died and rose again. And then when Jesus died and rose again, he led the captives free. He, that is, he took all the redeemed, he emptied all of the redeemed, you know, Moses and Abraham and all the saints, Old Testament saints, out of this place of Abraham's bosom and brought them to heaven to be with him. And so when you and I die today, we will not go to Abraham's bosom, we would instead go straight to heaven to be with God. That's sort of how people try to explain this. Now, the thing is, uh, even though it sounds logical, seems reasonable, this idea of Abraham's bosom is not found anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, where does it come from? It doesn't come from the Bible at all. It comes from the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, which is not scripture. It's a uh, intertestamental Jewish literature. It was taught and written uh, during those 400 years prior to the birth of Jesus. All right? Uh, intertestamental, that time period between the two testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what happened here is the Jewish people, you remember, were carted off into Babylon and the Babylonians believed that there was a single afterlife location for all the dead that all the people went to one place and based on how you lived in this life determined what sort of experience you would have in this one single location in the afterlife all right so there was a dwelling place a single dwelling place but had it had two regions one for the righteous and one for the wicked this was the Babylonian teaching And some of the Jewish people who were living in Babylonian captivity sort of picked up on this idea and began telling stories about a similar fate for Jewish people, that good Jewish people would go to the place of suffering in this one location in the afterlife, whereas um, I'm sorry, did I say good Jewish people? The good Jewish people would go to the good place in this one location and the bad Jewish people would go to the bad place, the, 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 the negative experience. And so there's a few accounts, and then we have some of these teachings in the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. They do speak of Abraham's bosom as the place for the righteous Jews after they died. So the the, the concept does have some history, some tradition in Jewish tradition, but not in the Bible, only in the Babylonian Talmud. So that is indeed what Jesus does seem to be referring to here. But let me ask you a question. Jesus refers to this place, this sort of popular concept or idea that some people probably believed during his time. But even though Jesus does refer to it, does that mean he endorses the idea? Does that mean Jesus is saying, yes, this idea we picked up from the Babylonians, that really is the way it's going to be? Or that really is the way it is now? I don't think so. All right. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but if I were to tell you, hey, uh, imagine you died and you stood before Peter at the pearly gates. Right. And so I went on to tell a story about that. Am I, by using that illustration, saying this is the way it really will be? When you die, you really will stand before Peter. He's got this little podium with all of his books outside the pearly gates of heaven. And before you get in, he gives you a little quiz or he checks the books before he allows you through the gates. Am I saying that's the way it really will be? That's what I think will happen? No. <laughs> this is a popular sort of concept or idea, almost the beginning of a joke or story that is very common in modern Western civilization. And if I use that illustration in a story, it's not because I'm endorsing it, or because I think that's the way it really will be, it's because I'm using a concept or idea that is popular and common, but everybody knows, at least most thinking reasonable people know, especially those who know the Bible, realize that's not the way it really will be. I'm using it as an illustration or an example to lead into a point. And I believe Jesus was doing the exact same thing here. Jesus was using a common folktale about Abraham's bosom to make a point. He was using the imagery, not because he agrees with it, not because he believes it, not because it is correct and right, but because it helped make the ultimate point that Jesus wanted to make. And we'll see what that point is in just a minute, all right? So in light of these sort of two first ideas, especially this idea of Abraham's bosom, what we seem to have here, in the account of the rich man and Lazarus is, I believe this is a parable. All right? Uh, The story of Jesus here in Luke 16 contains all the markings of a parable. Uh, there, There are numerous and significant elements to this story that are parallel to the other parables in the preceding context. In fact, this is the fifth of five parables, and I'll be talking about that in just a minute. As long as we understand that this is uh, the fifth parable in a series, it helps us understand the point Jesus is making. And there's lots of parallels between this story and the other parables. Uh, For example, uh, the parable of the unjust steward at the beginning of Luke 16 begins with the words, there was a certain rich man. And that's exactly how this story begins. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man. And so that tells us, Jesus is telling another parable here. And the two parables, this one and the parable of the unjust steward, focus the reader's attention on a certain rich man. Uh, We have one in Luke 16, 14, and how he mistreated the poor and as a result was an abomination to God, that's verse 15. And then we have a similar thing here with this, this rich man here who mistreats Lazarus. All right, so... There's lots of other parallel uh, parallels between this story and the other parables, uh, but um, I think that—and uh, I'll cover some of those in just a bit. Now, the only reason—I've read many, many books and articles and commentaries on this story, and there's only one reason, primarily, that people give for why they think this is not a parable, all right? And the reason is because Jesus specifically names— two characters, Abraham and Lazarus. And they say, usually when Jesus tells parables, he does not name the characters. He just describes them. Uh, No other recorded parable of Jesus, they say, provides a proper name for any of the key human characters. All right. Well, okay. Technically, that is true. Now, it doesn't mean that in other parables, Jesus doesn't provide names for some of the characters. He does. For example, Satan is mentioned in Mark 4.14. Jesus calls himself, gives himself a title, the Son of Man in Matthew 13.37. There are several personal titles in Luke 10, 25 to 37. Uh, Many people, not myself, but many people believe that the story of Job is a parable of sorts. Uh, in which case, obviously, it contains the names of several people, Job and his friends. And uh, But aside from that, even outside of Scripture, we go and look at a lot of the other Jewish parables from the time. Many of them used names of people in telling the stories. Just because we don't really have examples of Jesus doing that in the Scriptures doesn't mean he didn't. And obviously, many other parables do include names. So I don't think that the presence of two names here, Abraham and Lazarus, indicate that this is not a parable. I think there's good reasons to, to believe that it is, based on other contextual clues. And besides that, many people speculate that the, one of the reasons Jesus was referring to Lazarus here. Is he maybe was using the name of a popular beggar who was well known in the streets of Jerusalem at that time. Uh and so that would make sense. Oh, Lazarus, yeah, I I've seen him outside the gates to the temple or outside the gates of Jerusalem. I've seen him there. So so it would make sense if, if Lazarus was a real beggar at the time who died, then um, or maybe he was even alive at the time, then that would make sense for Jesus to mention him. The other possibility is that maybe Jesus was referencing a popular Jewish folktale. Again, if there was a a popular story that that many people believed, like I might talk about Peter at the pearly gates, right? Well, I've mentioned a name there, Peter, but you recognize it as a fictional story. And so so Jesus may be referencing a popular Jewish myth or folktale that was common in his time, which mentioned maybe Abraham and Lazarus. And so so that might be what Jesus is doing too. I think that all of the evidence points to this being a parable, a story, not a literal account of what Jesus actually believes will happen or did happen to some people. All right? If, if, the, the, if the only evidence is that Jesus mentions two names here and that means this is not a parable, I don't think that's a strong argument at all. All right? So let's move on then. Fourth uh, reason to help us sort of the contextual key that helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here. In this story, Jesus speaks of Hades instead of Gehenna. Now, I have talked in previous studies about both of these words, Hades and Gehenna, and what they meant to Jesus and to the audience that he was speaking to at his time. So I'm not going to try to cover those now again. You can go back and listen to those studies. But Everywhere else in the gospels that Jesus speaks about individual people in hell he uses the word gehenna. Everywhere else whenever he talks about individual people suffering in hell he uses the word gehenna. Remember the, the gehenna is this this valley of Hinnom outside of the walls of Jerusalem, all right? But here, Jesus doesn't use the word Gehenna. He uses the word Hades. And whenever Jesus uses the word Hades, he's not talking about individual people. He's instead, in all of those other places, he's describing the destruction that comes upon certain cities. So uh, the word Hades, just by way of summary again, was a Greek word for the abode of the dead, and it was also the name of the Greek God of the netherworld. <laughs> so by mentioning Hades here, in a sense, Jesus also is mentioning another name, <laughs> the Greek God Hades, the, the God of, of death in the underworld. So again, is Jesus saying, I believe that there really is a Greek God named Hades? No, Jesus doesn't believe that. All right, he's mentioned another proper name here, but he doesn't endorse the concept of the Greek God of Hades. Uh, but he is referring to Hades here, and again, it just further supports this idea that this is a parable, this is a story. Jesus is using these images of Abraham and Lazarus and Hades from Greek mythology to make a point. And then he combines this with the Babylonian imagery, the Babylonian myths about the underworld being in two compartments. The Jewish people then called Abraham's bosom. You see how all of this, Jesus is pulling from Greek mythology, Babylonian mythology, common folk tales, Abraham and Lazarus, and Abraham's bosom, and Hades. He's pulling all this imagery together to make a point. And I don't think it could be any more clear. Jesus is saying, don't think I'm describing a literal place, a literal experience in the afterlife for some people. I'm trying my best pulling from Babylonian mythology, Greek mythology, Jewish folk tales to help you understand a completely different point. And why is Jesus doing all this? Not because he believes in Hades, you know, the Greek mythology or in Abraham's bosom or in this, this, this Babylonian concept of twin compartments in the afterlife. no. Jesus is doing this because it makes a memorable story, and he's mixing all these images so he can tell a parable that will connect with his listening audience on multiple levels. He is making a point he doesn't want his audience to miss. (laughs) Ironically, then, when Christians say, oh, this is a teaching about hell, guess what? We miss the point Jesus was trying to make. When we just see this story here about Jesus warning people they're going to scream and suffer in flaming fire in the afterlife for all eternity, we end up missing the entire point of this story. So what is the point? Ah, well... Here we get into the context again. I've been talking about the context, historical context, literary context. Now we're going to look at some of the contextual context here, the the grammatical context leading up to this story. Remember the five rules of Bible study? Context, 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 context. So the context, the grammatical context here uh, in the passage uh, of Luke 15 and 16 is the fifth and final piece that helps us know, what the story of the rich man and Lazarus is all about. So Jesus has been making one single point in the preceding context, the preceding four parables. And this fifth and final parable hammers that one single point home. All right, so the setting, you have to go all the way back. If you have your Bibles, it really would be helpful to go back and look at this. The setting for this context is found all the way back at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 in verses 1 and 2. Jesus there welcomes and spends time with sinners and tax collectors, the outcasts, the rejects of society. And what happens? The Jewish religious leaders who were the rich and wealthy and powerful of that time, they chide Jesus. They condemn him for eating and befriending such people. They believe, these Jewish religious leaders believe, that it is better to remain separate and distinct from such wicked people. Because simply by being in their presence, they're going to pollute us. Their sin is going to rub off on us, right? We will become unsanctified, unholy, unclean by being with them and near them and eating with them in their presence. So that's Luke 15:1 and 2. That's the setting. And in response to what the Jewish religious leaders have said to Jesus, Jesus tells them five parables. The first three parables in Luke 15 explain why Jesus does what he does and what the results will be. These are the parables, the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The lost son uh, story, parable, is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, but it really is the lost sheep, one out of a hundred, the lost coin, one out of ten, and the lost son, one out of two. Right? You're familiar with those stories. I don't need to summarize them. But that third story, the story of the lost son, it is the transitionary parable. The three parables, lost coin, I'm sorry, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, describe Jesus' ministry, why he came, what he's doing, why he spends time with the the outcasts and the rejects and the sinners and the tax collectors of society. But that third one is key because it transitions, to the final two parables in Luke chapter 16. What do we have in the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost son, is these two sons. And it shows how this younger son went into a far country to squander his father's inheritance. But it also tells us the story of the elder son who stays home and works hard on the family farm. And the story indicates initially... That the son who went away into the far country, the sinner, he's the lost son. But as the story closes, we discover, much to our shock and surprise, that the prodigal son is not the lost son. The lost son is actually the one who stayed. The one who followed all the rules. All right? It is the eldest son who is actually the furthest away from the heart of the father. Right? He wants to keep, the eldest son wants to keep his younger brother, his sinful wayward brother, away from his father to not welcome him back into the family. And the father, that doesn't reflect the heart of the father. The father says, no, he's back. He was lost. He's been found. So let's throw a party, feasting, dancing. But the eldest son wants nothing to do with it. He prefers to stay in the darkness outside the party. Interesting. We talked about the outer darkness as well. Jesus doesn't exactly use the term here, but the imagery is the same. The eldest son is the one who's in the outer darkness because he was angry and did not want to go in and be in the presence of his sinful wayward brother. All right? So, it's helpful to recognize this third parable, this parable of the lost son, it serves as a transition. Yes, it shows the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. And Jesus welcomes both types of people, right? Those who are wayward and have gone away, and also those who are wayward of heart and do not recognize and understand the heart of the Father. But Jesus says, I can welcome both. I can invite both into the party. But if one person chooses to stay outside in the darkness, there's not a whole lot he can do about it. All right, so the story of the rich man and Lazarus is, um, I'm sorry, so the story of the prodigal son shows this. Now, very, very interesting. The story of the rich man and Lazarus has many, many parallels to the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son. For example, both the prodigal son and Lazarus find themselves in desperate situations. In both stories, both are begging for scraps. The rich, the the prodigal son, the lost son, the one who goes to the far country, he's there taking care of the pigs. And he's like, why am I eating pig slop? I just wish I could beg for scraps from my father's table. That life would be better than this. Same with Lazarus. He is begging for scraps because he's so hungry. Uh, Both men are in the company of unclean animals. The lost son is in the company of swine. And Lazarus is in the company of dogs that are licking his wounds. Both stories have father figures. The rich man calls Abraham his father. And Lazarus leans on Abraham on his chest, much like the prodigal son is held close to his father's chest. Right. Both contain a theme of distance— there's a great distance between the rich man and Lazarus with this chasm in between, right? But in the story of this, the, the, the prodigal son, there's a great distance between the father and the son that goes into the far country, right? The father sees his son from a long way off and runs to meet him. The rich man, though, in the story of rich man and Lazarus maintains his distance, somewhat like the eldest son. He doesn't want to be in the same room with his Younger brother, all right. So, uh, and then both the there's some differences as well. The prodigal son comes to his senses, but the rich man does not. So here we see the difference here. It's just very much like the eldest son. Look, I could go on and on. The point is this: there's so many parallels between the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 and the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The first parable is about Jesus and his ministry. All right, and and uh, the, the story of Luke. I'm sorry, the first three parables of Luke 15 are about Jesus in his ministry, and that third one's transitionary. Okay, now I've talked briefly about the rich man and Lazarus, but what about this fourth and final parable, sort of the one that is in the middle? Well, that third parable is transitionary, so now we have the parable of the unjust steward, which is the fourth parable in Luke 16. And while the first three parables of Luke 15 were about Jesus and his ministry, I'm convinced that this fourth parable is about the religious leaders and how they sort of carry about their ministry. Now, the problem with this parable, the unjust steward, is many assume that Jesus is describing how we, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to function in this world. But that cannot be the point of this parable. If it were, go read that story in Luke 16, 1 through 13. If if Jesus is saying, here's how you should function in this world, then what he is telling his followers is, hey, you should cheat your employers and live unscrupulous lives so that you can gain favor with others and wealth for yourself. (laughs) Does that sound like something Jesus would teach? Cheat your employers? Lie, cheat, and steal, right? So that you can make friends among other people who live in similar ways and become wealthy? No, Jesus teaches nothing like that in any other parable. That's why this parable is so confusing, all right? But many people get confused because they think Jesus is applying the parable of the unjust followers, the unjust steward to his followers, where he seems to say, you know, so this is how you should use riches to make friends with for yourself with others. But uh, Jesus basically says, when your money fails, here's Luke 16, 9, and when your money fails, they will welcome you into their home forever and ever. Now, think about society and culture and civilization. Is that how it works? If you are rich and you make money, friends, with your riches, throwing parties, they invite you over to their house, you invite them over to your house— You go out, you have fun, parties. What happens when your money runs dry, when you run out of money? Do all of those rich friends continue to be your friends? No, they do not. So if Jesus is saying here, hey, make friends while you have riches so that when your riches run out, you will still have your friends. If that's what Jesus is saying, then Jesus is flat out wrong because that's not how this world works, is it? Therefore, what Jesus is saying here, it's not an application at all, but actually a sort of sarcastic reference to how the people of this world will not treat you when your wealth is gone. It's very difficult to hear tone of voice when we're reading the text, but whenever you come across a difficult parable like this, if you can sort of look for the joke, uh, the sting, the, the, the twist in the story, especially... Add a little twinkle to Jesus' eye, a little smile on his lips, maybe a little sarcasm or humor to the, the the punch at the end of the story. And I think the point will be made clear. That's the same thing here. Jesus is saying, here's sort of the twist, the humor in the story. If you use money to gain friends, don't be surprised that when your money runs out, your friends will too. All right? Oh, they'll promise. Yeah, we'll be there for you. We'll take care of you. Oh, if you come upon hard times, we're not going to leave you. (laughs) But that promise only lasts as long as your money does. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's sort of sarcastic humor. Oh, yeah, sure. You think you're making friends with your money? No, you're not. They are only friends with your money. All right. So when your money goes, they go too. And that's exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the lost son, right? What we just saw at the parable of the prodigal son at the end of Luke chapter 15. He went into a far country, right? He had lots of money, he threw lots of parties. And while that was going on, he had lots of friends, right? And then what happened? His money ran out. And what happened? No more friends. So Jesus is not contradicting himself here in this fourth parable in Luke 16. He's just saying, here's how the world works. Now, that's really what you want. Well, then here's what you're going to get. Now, here's the thing. The parable of the unjust steward, it's not about how disciples of Jesus are supposed to act and behave, but instead how the world acts and behaves. And specifically, going all the way back to the first two verses of Luke 15, who is Jesus pointing the finger at here? The religious leaders. Because this is how they behave. The first three parables were about how Jesus behaves. The third parable is transitionary, showing the two different options. This fourth parable now is about how the religious leaders behave and how this world behaves. They use money to gain friends and influence and power for themselves. And if you go back in history and culture— Jewish society, even today, you don't even have to go back. This is the way it works today. Many religious leaders became very rich by making deals with merchants and political leaders. They were using mammon and the way of this world to benefit and enrich themselves, to get more money and power for themselves. Uh, By the way, they also trafficked in the forgiveness of sins. Didn't just happen. You might have heard with the Reformation, Martin Luther, the Catholic Church practice of selling indulgences. Put your money in and we'll forgive your sins. That didn't, wasn't invented by the Catholic Church in the days of Martin Luther. The religious leaders in the days of Jesus were doing it as well. In fact, all religions do it, have done it throughout time. They warn people about hell and suffering and torture in the afterlife. And if you want to avoid that, then you need to get rid of your sins. And we know you can't do that because we're human. We all sin. So give us money and we'll take care of it for you. It's sort of the heart of religion right there. Jesus, though, he was giving away forgiveness for free. And that's one of the reasons the religious leaders were so angry at him. Uh, giving away free forgiveness did not make friends with the religious crowd. It threatened their teachings, it threatened their power, threatened their position. By the way, that's why Jesus mentions this John the Baptist. Lots of people say, what's this story of John the Baptist doing in Luke 16, 14 through 18? It doesn't really seem to fit. Well, it does fit when you understand the parables in their context. What did John the Baptist do? He threatened Herod and his marriage to Herodias. And that eventually led to Herod beheading John. So that event in the life of John also explains why Jesus throws in the teaching of marriage and divorce here. People say this doesn't fit. Well, it does when we remember that that's what Herod was challenging, I'm sorry, that's what John was challenging Herod about. Okay, so all of this fits together here. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it. Let's move on. We're trying to get to this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, this fifth and final parable. So Jesus goes on to describe, finally, this fifth and final parable, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man obviously represents the rich men who are discussed in the context, which is the Pharisees, Right in verse 15, they are described as lovers of money. Verse 13, they were servants of mammon. Like the unjust steward in the fourth parable, they used their money and position to make friends with the rich to enrich themselves. Now, what were they supposed to do with their money? Well, they were supposed to take care of the poor and the needy in their midst. Like who? Like Lazarus. Verses 20 and 21, who are covered in sores, laid at the gate desiring for a few crumbs from the rich man's table. Now, what gate did, did Lazarus lay? There's some speculation on this. In the days of Jesus, there were some Gentile converts to Judaism who were called gate proselytes. They were Gentiles, and so they were kept in the outer court of the Gentiles at the temple. They were not allowed to pass into the court of women even. I don't know if you know this, there were these various courts at the temple. The outer court was a court of the Gentiles. So if you were a convert, a Gentile convert to Judaism, that was as far as you could go. Jewish women could go a bit further into the court of women. And then past that was the the court of the Jewish men. That was where the Jewish men could go. All right, so um, many of these gate proselytes, these Gentile converts to Judaism, wanted to go further, but they were kept Far off, they were barred from access. So they would hang out at that outer gate, peering through its opening, longing to be closer with God. This is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two, where where he describes uh, Jesus bearing or, or tearing down the barrier between us and God. These barriers that religion had put up, Jesus tore them all down. But the religious leaders in Jesus' day and in our day as well wanted to keep them up, wanted to keep them in place to separate themselves from others. Right, And also to profit from it. And so the religious leaders kept these Gentile proselytes at a distance. They were sinners who could not draw near to God. I'm not saying this is who Lazarus was. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But if he was a Gentile proselyte, a gate proselyte, then not only was he overlooked and neglected because of his sores and his starvation, but also he was denied access to serve and honor and love and worship God. All right, And now, in this fifth and final story, all of these four parables and the initial event in Luke 15 all leads up to this point where Jesus is saying, that's not how it is in my kingdom. The entire situation is turned upside down. The entire scenario is reversed. In Jesus' fifth and final story here, who is closest to God? Who is closest to Abraham? It's Lazarus. Lazarus is with Abraham the father of the jewish faith while the rich man is the one who is far off thirsty separated longing to be where the others are rather than begging for food and rather than the poor man lazarus begging for food and scraps who is actually begging it's the rich man he is begging abraham to do a couple of things. Please send Lazarus for a drop of water on my tongue. Also, could you please go warn my five brothers? Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets for that. Uh, Apparently Moses and the prophets are enough to contain instruction and warning to keep a person from experiencing the fate of the rich man. And if you go back and read Moses, that's the Pentateuch, Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then especially the prophets. Moses is one of the greatest prophets, so all the other prophets, that basically the entire Old Testament pretty much. What is the main theme throughout all the prophets? There's one main overriding theme over and over and over and over and over in the prophets. One of the main reasons many churches don't preach or teach from the prophets today. What's the main theme? Take care of the poor and the needy in your midst. Right? Yeah, there's lots of other sins that Moses and the prophets warn people against, but they all lead to, or they all point to, one of the main things, uh, it, that is to take care of the orphans and the widows, the foreigners, the strangers, the poor and the needy in their midst. You do not depend on government to do this. Uh, you do it yourself. All right? So um, we're not supposed to say, that. well, the government will take court take care of them. We're supposed to go take care of them ourselves. When we do that, when we take care of the poor and needy in our midst, that is a clear sign that God is in our midst, that we are with Abraham and the saints. So all of that leads up to this point. What is this fifth and final story in this series of stories all about? What is the story of rich man and Lazarus all about? All right. It summarizes the previous four stories by comparing and contrasting The way Jesus carried out his ministry and the results that come from that with the way the religious leaders carry out their ministry and the results that come from that. The world, the religious leaders, they worship mammon. They use money to gain friends and power for themselves. What's the result of that? Well, they're greedy living. They're lusting after money and wealth and power. It does not satisfy. It does not quench their thirst for meaning or significance in this world. Like the rich man in the story, money satisfies those who chase after it less than a single drop of water on a tongue would satisfy the man who's burning in flames. I mean, think about that. You're burning in flames. What is one drop of water on your tongue going to do? Nothing. Well. What is all the wealth and riches in the world going to do to satisfy your longing and your cravings for significance and purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction in life? Nothing. The quest for money does not quench one's thirst. No matter how much you have, it always leaves you desiring for more. The story of the prodigal son, the lost son, depicts a man who started out chasing after money but discovered it was worthless the story of the unjust steward shows how this world uses and responds to money the pharisees didn't like this because they were guilty of these sins and so in an attempt to justify their own greed they complained about his teaching derided his message that's luke 16:14 so john provides the example of so jesus provides the example of john who was a just and faithful steward Again, remember, was John greedy for money, power, privilege? No, he was poor. He ate locusts, right? Wore this this coat of hair and and died. He got beheaded. He did not use money to make friends with the rich and powerful, but Jesus praised him. He's known as the greatest prophet up to that time. And all of these lessons are wrapped up in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So ultimately, this fifth and final story is a warning against greed, right? In Luke 16, 15, Jesus identifies the love of money as an abomination to God. Uh, The parable of the rich man and Lazarus illustrates that greed does not accomplish the righteousness of God or help one experience the kingdom of God. Remember, all the parables are about the kingdom of God, and this one is no different. Jesus is basically saying, you can invite flames into your life here and now, Yeah, you might have some wealth and power and prestige and position. You might even have friends, at least friends as long as your wealth continues. But none of that will satisfy you. What will satisfy you? Life in the kingdom of God. The flames in this story of the rich man and Lazarus, they are no more literal than Abraham's bosom. Does Abraham's bosom exist? Nope. It's a myth. The flames also are symbolic. They represent the burning agony of a thirsty soul who's searching, longing for something that will quench his thirst. But no matter how much wealth and money and power and fame and prestige they gain in this life, it is no more helpful to them than a drop of water on the tongue of a burning man, all right? And so we see these two different types of living described, illustrated by the rich man and Lazarus in this story. And so the rich man, Jesus describes him as being in torment. All right. Uh, there, in fact, there's two different words Jesus uses for torment here in this story. The first one, Jesus says in verse 23, it says he was in torment in Hades, this word is basano. It literally means a touchstone. I think I've talked about this before. A touchstone was used to, in ancient times to, to, describe, or to test the value or the genuineness of gold and silver. They would uh, take the coin or jewelry and they would rub it on the touchstone to see if it was truly gold or if it was fake. All right. So um, this man is being tested to see if he is real. And so he looks fancy on the outside, doesn't he? He looks like gold. He looks precious, but when placed under the touchstone, he is revealed to be fake and he cannot handle that revelation. When the rich discover or are told or are revealed that they are empty and worthless, that there is nothing to them, most of them cannot handle the truth. Such a revelation to them is agony. This revelation might not come in the afterlife, but might come in this life as well. So it's not a story necessarily about the revelation that will come to the afterlife. It might. It's not talking about screaming, burning, suffering in flames, but the torment that comes when they see who they really are and what they have worked for in life. So that's the first word for torment. The second word used for tormented is odunomai. It's in uh, Luke 16 verses 24 and 25. And probably it's better translated as grief or anguish. It refers to emotional turmoil, not so much physical pain, right? And it's only used two other times in the New Testament, both by Luke. It's found in Luke 2.48, where it refers to the anxiousness of Mary and Joseph when they believe they have lost Jesus in Jerusalem, (laughs) okay? Remember the story? They go to Jerusalem, and Jesus goes off to debate. Scripture and theology with leaders in the temple. Mary and Joseph are anxious. Now, are they being physically tormented and tortured? Are they being burned and whipped and tortured in Jerusalem while they walk around? No, it is emotional anguish. They are in turmoil about that. Right? Uh, and also it's used by Luke in Acts 20, 38 to refer to the sorrow that the Ephesian elders experience when they say goodbye to Paul, knowing that they would never see him again, because he would get arrested. And ultimately killed, right? So in neither case, does so these, these other two places, does it refer to people screaming, suffering, getting tortured, uh, anything like that? It refers to intense emotional grief or anguish. So again, applying that to the text here, Jesus is not describing this rich man getting tortured, tormented, in suffering, screaming, burning flames for all eternity. This is the emotional turmoil, anguish he experiences when he discovers that the poor man has more connection with Abraham and the faith and with what God values in this world than he himself had with all of his riches and wealth and power. For a man who has put all of his hope, all of his work into worldly riches and social status, and you come to the end of your life and you discover it's all worthless and empty and meaningless, That truth is more than most people can bear. And so it was torment for him. Too late, he discovers that the prophets and Moses were right. That there is emptiness in working for riches and wealth. The real value, the real joy, the real satisfaction and fulfillment in this life comes in doing what Jesus calls us to do. To identify with the poor and needy in our midst to welcome them, to be with them, to spend time with them, as Jesus himself was doing at the beginning of these stories in Luke 15 verses 1 through 2. And the witch man, he can't handle this. In fact, that's what we see here. He even tries to attempt to command and control Lazarus. He, he says, he tells Lazarus to bring him a drop. He tells Abraham to command Lazarus, right? He can't even talk to Lazarus. He still doesn't see that he's on equal footing with Lazarus, or even Lazarus is, in some sense, is superior to him. So he's like, tell Lazarus to bring me. He's still trying to command Lazarus to obey his whims and his wishes. Right? Rather than ask for forgiveness and say I didn't understand. you know this chasm that separates Abraham and Lazarus from the rich man, it's just like the chasm of the eldest son in the story of the lost son. in, in there in that story of the lost son, the rich man, I'm sorry, uh, the, the father invited the eldest son to come join the party, but who refused? The eldest son refused. The chasm was of his own making. It's the same thing here in the story of rich man and Lazarus. This chasm that separates the two, it's not making that God didn't make this. Abraham and Lazarus didn't make this. It's the rich man that's the chasm of his own making. He refuses to humble himself, to beg for forgiveness, to say I'm sorry, to recognize that the, rich, that the Lazarus had it right while he himself had it wrong. The great gulf that separates the rich man from Abraham and Lazarus is a divide of his own making. And it cannot be crossed for the rich man because he won't admit that he's no better than Lazarus. He believes his riches, his power, his position, his influence makes him better. And so his religious arrogance keeps him separated from, from others. And Lazarus and Abraham, they can't cross the chasm because it's not a division of their making. They want to. They would like to cross it, just like the father in the story of the two sons invites the young man, the eldest son, in, but the father can't make him come in. The eldest son has to come by his own volition. The rich man's the one who created the divide. And so those on Abraham's side of the chasm. They might want to pass over there out of compassion, but they cannot. The text, the story, clearly indicates that the rich and privileged, those with status, they are the ones who create this divide, not God. So again, all of these facts come together to point us to the truth, that this is not a picture of medieval hell, people screaming, suffering, burning in eternity. Instead, it's a picture of, of the separation and division that exists here and now in this life between the rich and the poor. And it's a division not created by God. It's a division created by the rich and the powerful because they want to feel superior. All right. They want to alienate themselves from others. The chasm is a spiritual parallel to death in the social chasm, right? They make it impossible for the poor to pass over. Uh, And so Ultimately, this story is a condemnation of greed and the religious haughtiness and arrogance that the religious leaders were showing way back at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. It shows how life looks from God's perspective when the rich create chasms for themselves between the poor and the needy. The rich could learn much and benefit greatly from the refreshing presence of the poor and needy among them. This is the truth of all of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But the rich separate themselves because, right, the poor are beneath them. And though the religious elites claim to follow the law and prophets, their actions and behavior show they know nothing of what Scripture teaches, what God wants, what Jesus commands, even what Jesus himself showed and revealed through his own life and ministry. Those who rest and live in the way of Abraham and those who follow the teachings and example of Jesus. That is, those who live in solidarity with the sick, the poor, the outcast, it is among them that the kingdom of God naturally lives and grows. That is the point of these five stories. Jesus is contrasting his way with the way of the world, the way of the rich, the way of the religious elites. And Jesus is saying, choose. You want a life of emptiness, meaningless, insignificance as you chase after money that will never quench your thirst? Or do you want a life of significance, joy, satisfaction, connection with God and others, knowing what life is really about? If you want that second option, Jesus is saying, then give up your wealth. Cross that chasm. Embrace the poor and the needy. Love, serve, and honor them. Use your wealth to serve Jesus, to serve the poor, to serve the needy, to serve in the kingdom of God. In this way, and in this way only, you will avoid the torment of hell in your life now. This is not a warning about the afterlife. The torment of your life now, recognizing that your life is meaningless and empty and insignificant. Experience the joy and fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven instead. Because that's where true joy and satisfaction are found. I hope that this brief sort of look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus have helped you understand what this story is actually about. More importantly, to make some changes and decisions in your life about how you're going to live. All right, don't think, well, the rich need to take care of the poor. They do. Guess who really needs to take care of the poor and needy? You and I. You and me, we're the ones this this story is about. Stop depending on government or calling for the 1% or whatever to give, to take care. They do need to do that. <laughs> but it's not about them. This is about you and me, isn't it? And how we can experience the kingdom of God rising in light and liberty and power in our life here and now as we align ourselves with the needy and the poor in our community and in our midst to take care of them as Jesus did. And thereby experience the kingdom of God in our midst. If you have questions, comments, just leave them on the uh, the, the the post or the lesson about this. And I'll try to respond to them as I'm able. And again, remember, all this comes from my book, What Is Hell? Lots of different ways you can get this: Amazon, Apple, Barnes and Noble, Kobo. All right. And uh, if you get it before. June 7th. Send an email to hellbook at redeeminggod.com and I will send you over $300 in audio teachings related to hell, teachings on hell, biblical teachings about hell. Those will come out at the end of June, right? So uh, take advantage of that in the next uh, 48 hours or so so you don't miss out on that. All right, see you next week when we talk about 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. See you then. Bye.